Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthit. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, is the impeachment process actually persuading anyone? So again and again, we see these things that should be utterly shocking just get kind of flattened, just become sort of background noise or static. Then, what does Brexit mean for the future of Britain and for American politics. This is something that we've seen, I think, all over the world, the demise of a class-based base for the left. And finally, a recommendation. In Chinese, it's described as the numbing, tingly spice. It's not super hot. It just kind of introduces this amazing sensation. The impeachment case in the House of Representatives has been devastating. We've heard from career diplomats alarmed at President Trump's self-serving use of foreign policy. Trump, meanwhile, has refused to cooperate with the process, rejecting all requests for White House staffer testimony. And yet the case appears to have done virtually nothing to move public opinion. Trump's approval rating, after dipping slightly, is back almost exactly where it was before the inquiry began. Ross, I never expected the process was going to sway most Trump supporters, but I did think it might sway some, and that just doesn't seem to have happened. Why not? Well, I think depending on the polls you look at, some people who voted for Trump in 2016 have been persuaded that the president did something wrong. Um, I think, you know, when you poll was the president's, you know, behavior vis-a-vis Ukraine good or corrupt or bad or what have you, you get up to, you know, 60 percent, even 70 percent in some polls. Um, What I think hasn't happened is that those people have been persuaded to – that he should be removed from office and of course the polls bounce around a bit. But it does seem like support for removing him has stalled out around 47 or 48 percent. I mean, you know, all this kind of speculation is just speculation. But I'll say this. I spent last week reading – the Washington Post's expose called the Afghanistan Papers about everything that's gone wrong in the Afghanistan war and how long and across how many presidencies, public officials, people in the Defense Department, people in the White House have said things about what's going on in Afghanistan that they knew were not true. I sort of was reading that while thinking about the testimony that you referenced from all the experts Um, all the sort of career officials who were so outraged about what Trump did in Ukraine and who testified not only that what he did was bad because it was corrupt in various ways but also because it jeopardized the national security process and crucial national security objectives. And that that contrast made me feel a tiny bit Trumpy, I think, in the sense that it made me feel like Trump is a corrupt politician. Um, but people have sort of underestimate how badly the establishment whose testimony is being offered as proof of his guilt has 
lost credibility over the last 20 years across Iraq, across Afghanistan, across the financial crisis, across our policies with China. And I, I guess I that experience thinking about this question made it feel less surprising um, that you might have a big chunk of Americans still who would say, I think Trump totally did something wrong here, but we've never removed a president and I don't trust the people testifying. I don't trust the establishment that's hate, that hates him. Let's just have the election instead. This should have been this kind of huge seminal event, right? Our generation's version of the Pentagon Papers. And it just wasn't that big of a thing, right? I don't mean that it wasn't that big of a thing in terms of the scope of the wrongdoing and the scope of the revelations, but I mean in terms of its broader political reverberations. There was just none of that um, because just the 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 bombast of this presidency and the you know kind of cavalcade this numbing cavalcade of of lies and misinformation that you sort of have to like bush yet whack your way through in order to understand the news it leaves people fatigued and overwhelmed and so again and again we see these things that should be utterly shocking just get kind of flattened just become sort of background noise or static the the reason that he's being impeached isn't that he jeopardized the national security of the United States um, or that he, you know, kind of defied the interagency processes on Ukraine. It's that, again, he extorted Ukraine to smear his enemies. He's still doing it, right? It's, it's all out in the open. And this has sort of been what Trump has perfected is this style of corruption that if you don't hide it, people don't necessarily grasp that there's anything to be hidden or that there's anything outrageous going on. You keep expecting, like, the one Republican to stand up or, you know, a point at which some Republican is going to say that their faith in our institutions is greater than their devotion to this president or their concern about packing the courts and I don't really, you know, I've I've kind of gotten over believing that, that that's ever going to happen. But you did expect one or two Republicans, you know, people who are retiring to 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 denounce this kind of behavior. And and they just won't. And it's because and it just is because there is no solidarity in this country anymore to any overarching set of values. Right. There's just mutual hatred. Both of your explanations make sense to me, but I'm still left feeling really alarmed by it. I mean, Michelle, I, I, I'm not quite at your level of alarm, but I'm not that far from it. And Ross, I guess the question I'd have for you is, sh- yes, Afghanistan has been an unmitigated disaster that has included lies from our government. But unfortunately, there's a long history of that in this country, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's Iraq. Um, there's a long history of foreign policy disasters where the government has not behaved as it should and the consequences have been really bad. And Afghanistan is not some new level of badness. Trump in a different way though is. I mean he is corrupt. He glories in his corruption. He does it publicly. He lies constantly. Um, he's just incredibly nasty to all sorts of people. He, 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 uh, our allies don't trust us anymore. And so the idea that we've reached the point where this is just normal, 
And because he's the president and because Fox News is behind him and because Republicans feel like they lose their elections if they defied him, the idea that this is now what we accept as Americans, to me, feels like a mark of a country in decline. And it doesn't just feel like, oh, it's just another problem in the list of Afghanistan. It feels different. And and you seem to disagree with that. Oh, I think we're a country in decline. Um, I would – well, I would make two points. The first is that Trump's sort of – the nakedness of Trump's sort of selfish dishonesty is unique in modern American politics. The fact that he is corrupt and tries to use elements of his federal powers against his political opponents is not unique. This kind of thing, the kind of thing Trump tried to do in Ukraine was something presidents did do and then we reached a sort of crisis point in Watergate and built norms against it. And Trump is bad and I agree he's bad in part because he is tearing down those norms. What I'm suggesting is that we should see that the, the public's partial acquiescence or at least desire not to actually remove him as a reaction to – the cascade of failures that from the perspective of lots of Americans are worse than living through Trump. I'm, I'm saying that I think, I think that in understandable appallment at Trump, there's sort of a failure to recognize just how badly the people who then are called upon to testify against Trump <laughs> have, have, have governed for for 20 years and like the Ukraine stuff. But Ross, the one thing I don't agree with Ross is that I don't think it's I think that I think that actually gives a lot of Trump voters too much credit to say, for them to say like, you know, yeah, these elites have all really let us down. I mean, let's don't let's be clear. A lot of these people were the same people screaming about freedom fries, right? These were people who were incredibly susceptible to the cult to the kind of cult around George W. Bush um, and thought people who didn't want to go into um, Afghanistan, let alone Iraq, um, were traitors. And so it's so right. So it's not just it's not just it's not just elites that have let people down here. And and I, I don't think it's that they're saying, well, you can't trust any of these people. I think it's that to to really believe in Trump the way a lot of the way his followers do, you kind of have to break with reality. You have to believe in a lot of things that aren't true, right? You believe that he's this self-made titan of industry. You know, you believe that the United States was a laughingstock under Obama and is now strong and respected again. You know, you believe all so if there is this it's not the sort of like rational consideration that's like I'm cynical and I don't believe what, you know, the State Department says as much as it is just this severing of the reality principle in American politics. And I guess I I think, Ross, where Michelle and I disagree with you pretty clearly is we think that it's not just Trump and that there's one of our two political parties that's fundamentally broken with reality, whether it's uh, about lying about where President Obama was born, whether it's about all the craziness that is on Fox constantly. Trump is an extension of that. And one of the main reasons I think we may be in a country in decline is because one of our two parties is so broken. And I don't think you share that diagnosis. No, I think the Republican Party is more broken in certain ways than the Democratic Party. Um, I'm I'm happy to concede that the Republican Party's distinctive 
breakdown after 2008 is a distinctive part of our problem. And I agree with Michelle that you know a mix of the party's activists and the party's leaders sort of bought into a you know a sort of a hermetic sealed off view of the world long before Trump came along, and that there is a sort of cultish aspect to some of Trump's support um, that is that is detached from reality. I'm just saying that I, I'm we're talking about we're not talking about why core Republican partisans who are not 45 percent of this country, but much less, haven't broken with Trump. We're talking about why the people who you know give Trump bad approval ratings when he tries to repeal the Affordable Care Act or give Trump bad approval ratings after Charlottesville, the people who can knock his approval ratings down into the 30s, aren't jumping ship. Let's end briefly on the politics. Uh, there's been a modest Democratic freakout that this is actually going to all be bad for Democrats and Michelle on Twitter and elsewhere. I think you've done a nice job batting that back. I I, I agree. I, I don't see. I think in the end, impeachment is going to be uh, most likely to be a political wash. I thought it was going to be good for the Democrats. I, I now don't think so. But I also don't see it as being some big help to Trump's reelection. It, it's probably going to be over early in 2020. The news cycle now moves so ridiculously fast. The polling isn't gyrating on this. It looks quite solid. And yeah, maybe this will hurt a couple House members in Trump won districts that now are represented by Democrats. But for the most part, I think this is going to be a wash. But can I just add quickly on a note of optimism, or if not optimism, maybe, you know, like hope amid the rubble, which is that I've been really moved by these Democrats in red districts who basically have decided that they would rather do the right thing than secure their reelection. And, you know, in some ways, sure, to, to vote for impeachment, you know, most of the people who wanted, who, who elected them, if not most of the people in their district probably wanted this. But, you know, I think that one after another, they have taken a risk and shown a lot of bravery and done what I've never understood why Republicans didn't do early on, which is basically say that there are things that are more important than being reelected. Michelle, I agree. I've been impressed. And I think they've done it quite eloquently explaining why they're voting the way that they are voting. I tend to agree with you, David. I think the political implications could be a wash. I do think it'll be interesting to see and will shape at least some narratives how not just Mitt Romney votes in the Senate when it comes to it, but also how a Joe Man Manchin or a Kirsten Cinema votes, that how the sort of how these few red state Democrats vote in the Senate will be, yeah, an interesting test. I agree with that and let's leave the discussion there. Last week, we did a segment on the cultural and political staying power of the boomer generation. And boy, did you all have some things to say about it. Hi, my name is Nancy Gray, and I am a baby boomer. I'm also what would be called a bleeding heart liberal. But I was quite taken aback by the harsh words used by Michelle in particular about my generation. I guess it's the first time I've been lumped with people whose opinions I strongly agree with, such as supporters of Donald Trump. Neither I nor any of my boomer friends voted for Donald Trump, and we worked hard to try to keep him from getting elected. Perhaps he got elected because so many young people who stood behind Bernie chose not to vote when Hillary became the choice. 
if you younger generations can make this world what I can now only hope it to be, please, please do so. Don't forget that you will be the older generation someday. Uh, hi, this is Dan from Brooklyn. I'm a 25-year-old millennial. So I think uh, Michelle said that the reason uh, baby boomers are still so politically and culturally dominant is because they're kind of just refusing to get out of the way and to allow the younger generations to step up. Uh, I partially agree with that. However, I do think that a good share of the blame does need to be laid at the feet of Gen X and their refusal to step up and take the reins from the baby boomers. They were kind of the slacker generation, right? The self-proclaimed slackers and kind of too cool to really care about politics. And I think that's having consequences for us today. Hi, my name is Carrie Good. I'm calling from Arizona. I'm a baby boomer. I'm very active in my own legislative district here in uh, the Maricopa County. And there are almost nobody uh, in our legislative district that are active except for baby boomers. Um, we can't even get young people to get involved. So I know that you think that the millennials are going to save us or maybe Gen X, but um, if you're going to, I sure hope that you guys start showing up. Hi, hi. It's Patricia Gary from Cincinnati, and I am actually too old to be a boomer. So I just want those guys out of the way. They do not know how to have fun. They do not know how to be happy. They do not know how to make the world better. And everybody my age and boomer age ought to just get off the stage now and move out of the way. That's my piece. Can I say, particularly in response to Nancy, and I heard this from other people, um, you know, boomers who have great politics and do great work and were really hurt by what I said. And I, I feel really sorry that my words hurt people um, and made people feel like they were being personally attacked. I also heard from a couple of people who said, wow, you guys were harsh on the boomers. It, it's possible to be harsh on a generation's overall effect while still believing that huge numbers of individuals uh, in that generation of varying political ideologies uh, have been forces for good. And uh, so maybe lesson learned. Next time we talk generations, we'll do a better job of, of making that clear. I apologize for nothing. I regret nothing. <laughs> no doubt we will be returning to the topic of generations later because we're all interested in it and clearly many of you are as well. So thank you for all of those phone calls. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Brexit is finally going to happen. Last week's election in Britain ended in a landslide victory for Boris Johnson and his Conservative Party, who campaigned strongly in favor of leaving the European Union. And I have two questions in the aftermath, one about the future of Britain and one about what it means for American politics. Let's start with American politics, just to play to the stereotype of provincial Americans. Michelle, there's been a lot of talk about how the defeat of Jeremy Corbyn, the leftist labor candidate, shows that leftism is a bad general election strategy, and not just in Britain, that Democrats should not nominate Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren here in the United States. I'm guessing you're pretty skeptical of that analogy, but I'm fascinated to hear what you make of it. Well, I, just, I mean, I, it's more that I feel like we don't know, right? There's been this phenomenon since Boris Johnson's victory of every American political pundit suddenly pretending to be an expert on British politics, which I am obviously not. And so I'm sort of reluctant to draw too many conclusions without more information. I mean, there's obviously big differences between Bernie Sanders and, and Jeremy Corbyn and their political contexts, including, you know, the debate over Brexit itself. And so, right. So, I'm sympathetic to Bernie and Warren supporters who think that, you know, American pundits are drawing very lazy lessons from two kind of non-analogous situations. Where I I do think there might be lessons for us is that this is something that we've seen not just in the Anglo world, but I think all over the world, is this demise of purely class-based politics and, you know, kind of the demise of a... Um, class-based base for the left. And so there's a whole critique about how we got to this point where, you know, the Democratic Party moved away from its or from its origins as a working class party. Um, and that's a debate that I think is, is hard to settle. What I do think we know is that just making financial or, you know, economic appeals to the old white working class has not so far in kind of, you know, in very many places been enough to win them back. I think that's a really interesting point. And uh, look, there are lots of ways in which it's unfair to compare Elizabeth Warren in particular to Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, she says she's a capitalist, um, and she is. Uh, and she doesn't have many of the of the problems that Corbyn did. Uh, but I, I think that what you just hit there, Michelle, I think is fascinating, which is uh, I, I think that In Britain, Boris Johnson had a very clear story that he was telling. Now, it included some lies, and in the Brexit campaign, it included some pretty significant lies. But it it also was a clear story, which is Britain needs to leave Europe. And it was a story that wasn't simply about people's short-term financial interests. It was a story that stirred their passions about the idea of Britain. And I do think the left in a lot of countries, including the United States, 
doesn't quite have a story that stirs people's passions right now. And finding that story, whether it's about competition with China, whether it's about corruption, I don't know exactly what it is. But but I do think finding that story is really important and it's something that could end up bringing really big returns for the left in Europe and the United States. I think that's sort of the lazy read of the election has a certain truth to it in that you know what happened in Britain was that Boris Johnson executed the most effective version of the populist turn that conservative parties have tried to make or sort of made all all over the world in that he moved substantially to the left um, on economics, made various economic promises related to the NHS, the National Health Care Service, um, to reassure working class voters that they would be at home in the party. And he won, he won voters that the conservative party, he won constituencies that the conservative party had never won before, hadn't won in, you know, however long. Um, and so in that sense, you know, there are enough similarities between all of these countries where populism is surging to look at that and say, look, this, this shows how a conservatism of national identity and economic moderation can be really successful. Now, with that said, it's also the case that there are some pretty big differences, right? And Jeremy Corbyn was seen as a more radical figure than a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren or anyone in the democratic field right now. Um, and I, I don't think that Corbyn's defeat proves that you can't nominate Bernie Sanders in any way, shape or form. And one reason among many I think it proves that – it doesn't prove that is that the demographics of the working class in the United Kingdom are just very different from the demographics of the working class in the US. And basically what Johnson was able to do would be the equivalent of a Donald Trump or some future Republican winning over not only white working-class voters but more African-American and Hispanic working-class voters. And the UK does have a minority working-class but it doesn't have the same minority working-class communities that have, you know, in the case of African-Americans, have been, been in the country for a long time and have this very strong historical reason to be loyal to the left-of-center party. So I think the demographic difference makes it harder to imagine a center-right populism succeeding as well as Johnson did. And then obviously the case of the, the, the fact that Brexit was this sort of huge cultural national issue that doesn't have a precise equivalent here scrambles things a bit further. Let's spend a minute talking about Britain. I mean, it really does seem to me that the United Kingdom as we know it may be disappearing. In this same election, Scotland voted overwhelmingly for a Scottish nationalist party. Scotland doesn't want to leave Europe. Um, and so it now seems like Scotland at some point may get another referendum about leaving the UK. Um, it narrowly decided to stay in the UK when it voted last time. And, and I think there's reason to think it, that election might go differently next time. There's also the whole question of Ireland. And this makes it more likely that Ireland and Northern Ireland um, may eventually come back together and would also leave the UK. Right. And nationalists won in Northern yeah, Ireland. And nationalists won in Northern Ireland. So you look at this and you realize, wait a second, it's not just that Britain may be leaving Europe, but also that Britain as we know it may be disappearing. Well, that's I mean, what's so fascinating to me is that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is somebody, right, who has his roots in the anti-imperialist left. And that's and I think that that hurt him a lot. But it's now going to be Boris Johnson who very likely presides over the actual end of the British Empire. 
right? Or the the end of what was left of the British Empire and basically leave just, you know, the country of England. You know, and similarly, we are seeing, you know, kind of the end of America as an empire. And so, you know, it's kind of a, a fascinating phenomenon that these like that that national greatness conservatism ends up corresponding to this huge shrinking of these countries influence um, beyond their borders. I mean, I, I will say that I think while I think what's happened has made Irish reunification more likely, um, I don't think it's actually made a Scottish exit from the United Kingdom more likely. Scotland, it's more important for Scotland to have an open border and sort of with with England than to have one with, say, Luxembourg. I'm I'm not an expert by any means, but I suspect that could keep the lid on Scottish nationalism a bit more than just the election results would suggest. Um, to Michelle's larger point, I, I think that there's – you know, I have a lot of conservative friends who find Brexit very exciting because it implies sort of that the arc of history can be unbent. <laughs> Right, that you can have this sort of seemingly inevitable progress towards a sort of bureaucratized world state that can be sort of undone and, you know, national identity can reassert itself and the past can sort of come back to life. And I think that's that's not the primary motivation for Brexit, but it's a source of, I think, some of its intellectual frisson on the non-English right. I think it's a source of part of the source of the deep terror that it causes in me. Um, and I think, you know, Probably a lot of Jews in particular, but, but, go but yeah, on. no. I mean, I, 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 I think there's obvious. Yeah, there are some obvious reasons why progressives have this have the mirror image reaction to something like this. But I think in in practice, it's actually, you know, there's there's a larger trend that that is you know is visible in sort of how Emmanuel Macron in France right now is talking about the end of EU expansion. It's visible in various ways all over the European continent where Europe is a continent that has slow growth, an aging population, um, a huge booming population next door in Africa and the Middle East and there's a sense in which all of these countries in different ways are sort of hunkering down as they age in spite of the the side of me that sort of thrills to the romanticism of it. I think the hunkering down – is the more important phenomenon ultimately. And to tie the two strands of our Brexit discussion together, that's why I think it's so important for Democrats and parties of the left to have stories that are fundamentally, if not nationalist, if you don't like that word, fundamentally patriotic. Um, and, and I think it's something that the left has been struggling to do currently. But there's nothing in, inherent about the left that it can't adopt a patriotic story. That If you go back and you look at the story of the civil rights movement or the labor movement, they were stories imbued with patriotism. And um, I think it would be really good for the left to rediscover but, that history. You know, but David, I really disagree with you. I mean, I don't disagree with you about the need to do that. But I think that they have done that to a degree that, you know, you didn't see in the past when there was much more, you know, kind of left-wing romanticism about various third world insurgencies, right? That's gone. I mean, Bernie Sanders, who is, you know, maybe the most sort of internationalist of all of the progressive candidates, you know, basically talks about bringing back the American of the, the America of, of FDR, you know, obviously, Elizabeth Warren talks about economic patriotism 
all the time. So I think you could make a critique that maybe they're not doing it effectively, but it's not that they sort of are not sounding these notes or that they somehow are kind of alienated from ideas of American patriotism in a way that I think the left in the past really was. I think that's fair, but it's early days. I think I think the Democratic Party is starting to do more of that along precisely the lines that you just described. But it isn't yet that effective, and it's still early enough. But I, I agree. I think there's there are some signs of progress. I th- I think it's simpler though, and but also harder in certain ways. I th- I think saying, you know, we need a better narrative is often a way for left of center parties to avoid reckoning with the fact that when you start losing elections, the way you win is to find some specific issues and move to the center on them. You know, and narratives are great, but sometimes there's no substitute for saying we're shifting rightward on immigration. We're not going to support Medicare for all. We're, you know, these sort of specific concrete policy gestures that at the very least, Jeremy Corbyn was probably not the man to offer. Okay, and on that uncomfortable truth, we will leave this discussion. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation when we suggest something to take your mind off of news. This week is my turn, and I'm going to make a recommendation tied to my recent trip to China. I recognize that not everyone can just drop everything and go to China, so it won't. It will end someplace else. But I went to an absolutely fantastic restaurant. It's the restaurant that is a tourist you dream of finding, where you walk in and it's clearly dominated by locals. It's called Zhang Mama, which is Mama Zhang's. It's Sichuan food. When I first got there, I realized I had a problem because the restaurant is local enough that the menu doesn't have English and doesn't have pictures. So the only way I could order was by pointing at things that other people had already ordered. And then a couple people saved me, and they helped me do some ordering. And they also ordered me basically Sichuan peppercorn oil, a little bowl to come to the table that I was able to dip my vegetables in. And if you know anything about Sichuan peppercorns, it basically, in Chinese, it's described as the numbing, tingly spice. Um, And it's sort of, it's not super hot, it just kind of introduces this amazing sensation in your mouth. So my recommendation for anyone who likes bold flavors is to go buy yourself some Sichuan peppercorn oil. It's not that easy to find, but it's possible. I even found one on Amazon. Um, Get yourself a bottle of it, uh, and uh, the next time you're having some plain old vegetables, just dip them right in the oil and enjoy that sensation. I'll definitely do that. I have a 7-year-old son who loves spicy food. Sometimes when he goes on playdates, I have to tell the parent that if he asks, you know, if you give him carrot sticks or something and he asks you for hot sauce, like he means it. <laughs> and so I will definitely um, get him some Sichuan pepper oil. I, I have never been to Sichuan province, but um, I do like Sichuan Chinese food. So my recommendation is Sichuan peppercorn oil. You don't even need to cook with it. Just eat it. That's our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. And for all of you who called in, thank you for doing that as well. If you have more thoughts or ideas, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Maddie Foley and Kristen Schwab for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here 
next week. My wife said to me, whoa, you guys were harsh on the boomers. (laughs) (laughs) 